This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everyone who's subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and any other social media you're using. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. This is the third episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 38, is entitled The Reluctant King. I hope you enjoy the show. about you, but at this point in our story of the 11th century, it might be a time for a drink. And I think I know just where to get one. But we have to head all the way back to 1040 to 1041. Around the time Hartha Canute was terrorizing his new subjects on the English island, deep in the heart on the co- of the continent in the impenetrable forests of modern-day Bavaria in southern Germany, a gift a gift that continues to be given even today, almost a thousand years later, was offered to the people in that area. In the year 1040, Abbot Arnold of the Weihenstefaner Abbey, near modern-day Friesing, Germany, secured the rights to create a recipe that might raise revenue for the humble abbey built upon the Weihenstefine Hill. Now, normally, that is before the year 1487, when the Reinheitsgebot, or Germany's coveted purity law, that still observed today was established. Normally, during the 11th century, people could brew beer in whatever ways they wanted. And here's as good a time as any to dispel a nasty little rumor about the Middle Ages that seems to fly around as wildly as starlings in their murmurations. No, beer wasn't developed and widely used because water was always dirty and always unfit for drinking. Sure, when you were downstream of a city like Rome, Constantinople, London, Paris, or even a large town even, such as York, Winchester, Reim, Dublin, Kiev, or Athens, you wanted to be more careful about the water sources you drank from. But for the vast majority of the medieval people, there were still plenty of clean and potable water sources to drink from. Brewing beer wasn't something everyone did, but it wasn't exactly a trade secret or anything either. Monks didn't necessarily have a monopoly on the recipe. With a little experience, one could gather herbs, wheat, berries, or dim near anything, boil it in some water, and let it ferment. And one could produce any number of different recipes for a basic beer. Drink it, sell it. I suppose we'll never know how many people actually brewed it at home during the thousand-year episode we call the Middle Ages, But let's just dispose of that rumor about bad water and get back to these Benedictine monks who were looking for ways to raise just a little extra cash. These these monks of Weihenstefiner Abbey, as I said, in the year 1041, who began brewing a simple lager. A lager is a type of beer where the fermentation period is a bit different than, say, an ale. A lager takes its time fermenting and doesn't take as much heat as other beers to ferment either. This low-temperature brewing technique is really hanging on one specific ingredient. 
water, malts, hops. These are the core ingredients that are brewed together initially. However, and I'm going to try to pronounce this right, Saccharomyces pastorianus really brings this drink to its fullest potential. This little starchy yeast is the, is the secret ingredient to making the most popular and most widely sold beer in the world today. Now, to be clear, as you probably know, these monks were hardly discovering or inventing something new. They didn't produce the world's first lager, hardly. Loggers are fairly simple and have been around for a long, long time. But what these monks did in 1041 was create a brewery that would survive 1,000 years. That's 1,000 years of war, political turmoil, economic uncertainty, fires, earthquakes, floods, some more economic uncertainty, natural shifts in climate. I mean, you name it. And the Weihenstefaner Abbey and its brewery has endured it and come out the other side with an almost nonstop production line of Weihenstefaner beer. Weihenstefaner Abbey holds the crown today as the oldest still existing brewery in the world. I'm feeling a little better after that. Got a little extra pep in my step. So let's leave southern Germany and head to, I don't know, Scotland? So speaking of brewing... Back on the big island in, island in the northwest, there was quite the storm brewing there. And it involves a name many of you have heard of and most of you dread upon hearing it, bringing back some of that good old-fashioned adverse childhood trauma of your high school subjection to William Shakespeare. Up north in Scotland, around the year 1040 to 1041, but mostly attributed to the year 1040, a new king was on a tear looking for some brat named Malcolm Canmore and his little brother Donald. See, just five years earlier, their father, King Duncan of Scotland, was murdered. These boys had been the rightful heirs to that throne. But a fierce warlord, in Scotland they were called Mormares, from, from Murray, emerged to claim that their father, the king, was a pretender, and he, Macbethod MacFinlick, should be king of all the Scots. Squint just so and you'll recognize who this new king was, this, this new king who was ripping through Scotland on a mission to dispatch these two young heirs. I'll say his name one more time. Macbethod Macfinlick. That's the old Gaelic, the language spoken in Scotland during the 11th century. But anglicized, this new king's name was Macbeth. Yes, that Macbeth. I can hear the collective groans out there in the pod universe. It's okay, though. Have faith, my friends. I won't go into Shakespeare's version of King Macbeth. In fact, Shakespeare's version, as classic and incredible as it is, is just that. It's incredible, as in not credible. Shakespeare wrote this, what, nearly 600 years after the events we're talking about? And with the records in the 11th century Scotland being nothing but patchy propaganda at best, Shakespeare did what great Hollywood writers do today. When it's not really that exciting, eh, you know, you make it that exciting. So much of Shakespeare's play was based on fabrications by not only three sources that were written within a hundred years before Shakespeare, but also just by a fanciful playwright. So be careful with that account. 
Though fun fact, that plays the thing that birthed the modern concept of the witch, the old broom-riding, hunchbacked potions master with a loud cackle, a crooked wart-tipped nose, riddles galore, all that. So anyway, what was the real Macbeth like? Well, we don't know too much, but let's look at his name as an example of how much we can find out about him. His name, Macbeth, as I said, was originally Macbethod Macfinlick in the old Gaelic. But when you break even that down, Mac is the Gaelic equivalent to what we've mentioned before about surnames. Ben and Bar to the Hebrews, Ibn and Bin to the Arabs, adding S-O-N or D-O-T-T-I-R to the first name of the father in Scandinavian. We could keep going, but suffice it to say that our Scottish friends used Mac to mean son of. So what can we draw from the name Macbethod Macfinlick's name? His name is directly translated as son of Bethod, son of Finlick. As far as I know, Macbeth didn't even have his own name. Reach out and correct me if I'm wrong, and, and I'm not understanding, you know, Scottish names, but as far as I can tell, we just know his last name, which is curious because of the emphasis on passing down names to possible heirs during this time period that we wouldn't have Macbeth's own first name so that we can trace his lineage. But let's hold on to that one for a bit. Many records, however, do attribute Macbeth's father to a mormare named Finlick, so I'm not exactly sure what's going on there, but again, I think that in and of itself is a bit telling of 11th century Scottish history. We just don't have clear answers. So basically, we know what we know of Macbeth through spotty Scottish records from the time, as well as the mentions he gets in the records from south of the borderlands when he begins interacting with the Northumbrians for various reasons. But while Macbeth was rampaging through Scotland, searching for those potential threats to his crown, those boys, upending mattresses and emptying the contents of their medicine cabinets at each castle he paid a visit to, you know, Scotland, throughout Macbeth's reign, actually experienced somewhat of a lull in activity. Now, to be sure, this was Scotland, and the Scottish, then and now, would never turn down a challenge or, or a fight. This was and is a very proud people scattered across some legit treacherous terrain, and challenges up and down the power structure of the kingdoms was solid, yet seemed to always be up for debate who was in charge. And even though Macbeth was embroiled in such a mess, he did see that the quality of life, even fractionally, improved around this time, as evidenced by the influx of trade with other kingdoms and ports. There was a bit of population rise as well in some records, so it's interesting to weigh Macbeth's reputation, again attributed him by the bard 600 years later, against the evidence from his own kingdom during this time of his reign. So, while Macbeth was riding around the countryside hunting those two fellas, knowing that the longer they were able to hide out, the more tenuous his own power became, Harthacnut, to the south, was also trying desperately to establish himself in England. But Harthacnut, as we've established pretty clearly already, was a bit of a tyrant. No, scratch that. This guy was a tyrant. There are no two ways about it. After ordering his own earls in 1040 to smash the tiny resistance in Worcester, Harthacnut received a letter from the Earl of Bamborough, way up north, near the Scottish borderlands with England. Now, we haven't had a chance to really talk much inside baseball about the smaller houses within the nobility of England during the 11th century, and, and to be clear, it's not for lack of information, necessarily. 
The records do a fairly decent job mentioning the major players on the scenes, and the House of Bamborough is one of those noble houses that cannot be ignored for too long. See, the House of Bamborough is a major part of Northumbrian politics as well as, and here's the interesting part, Scottish politics. They were instrumental in swaying opinions on both sides of that national border, but for the purposes of this narrative specifically, Earl Edwulf of Bamborough, again, one of the more important figures in northern politics, well, especially as Edwulf was the son and heir of a folk hero, Uhtred the Bold, who, who was almost as important as Earl Seward of York himself. Well, Earl Edwulf of Bamborough asked for safe passage to appear before King Harthacnut in London. Now, this is really interesting, considering the fact that anyone who requests safe passage to travel must have royally messed up. We don't know exactly why, but the Earl felt like he needed to make amends for something really important. After Worcester, he might have just thrown his hands up and decided that whatever holdout he had against the Danish king just wasn't worth it. This king was a monster. So Harthacnut afforded the Earl of Bamborough his requested safe passage. In fact, to give safe passage to someone in those days was a sacred oath, and to revoke that oath without telling the person was one of the worst things a person could do. But again, Hartha Canute had a bit of crazy in him. Earl Seward of York, Hartha Canute knew, was not a big fan of Earl Edwulf of Bamborough, and for Edwulf to travel to see the king in London, he had to pass through Yorkshire. In order to grant the man safe passage, it was mandatory as part of the oath to issue orders to anyone who might do harm to him to back off. Just, I mean, back off. Let the man pass or it's your head instead. So, Hartha Canute had a letter sent to Earl Seward in York. And this letter explicitly ordered Earl Seward to intercept Earl Edwulf of Bamborough and refuse passage. Well, it was a little more than that, actually. Earl Seward had been given rights by the king to kill the Earl of Bamborough, which is exactly what Earl Seward did. Two monumental things happened in that one event. First, Earl Seward of York had disposed, with the king's own permission, his biggest rival in the north. And Earl Seward of York was able to consolidate a massive chunk of the north called Northumbria. Yes, Earl Seward of Northumbria was now officially a thing, and let's hold on to that one for a while, too. But the second thing to happen simultaneously was King Harthacnut became an oath-breaker. Now, this was a capital crime in those days, and I, and I advise you, when you read and hear about this, not to roll your eyes and let that go. To be an oath-breaker in a society built upon a true honor code was to lose, essentially, all credibility. And that's just what Hartha Knut brought upon himself. Hartha Knut was now an oathbreaker. Hartha Knut, the king who, like a stern father, is merely using tough love and making examples to show his ultimate and overwhelming love for his people. Hartha Knut, the Old Testament god. I don't know. It seems like wannabe Emperor Hartha Knut just got a brand new pair of clothes, and they didn't look all that great. And not just in England. His new digs didn't really look too good in Denmark either, where his true base of support was. Sometime around Harthacnut's shameful public behavior, a man arrived on the shores of England, who will establish the England in which the Norman Conquest will take place. 
just a short 25 years into the future. He was Anglo-Saxon and Norman by birth, having been born to royalty in Islip in around 1003, mere months after his father's genocidal blunder on St. Bryce's Day. Even the Queen and her strong ties to the line of Harold Bluetooth couldn't save this man's father and the kingdom into which he was born. Around a decade later, he was shipped across the channel to his mom's ancestral home for just a short exile, but was allowed to come back home upon the death of the usurper, Swain Forkbeard, and the departure of his ambitious son, Canute. He fought alongside his older brothers, Ethelstan and then Edmund Ironsides, when Canute made a return attack, and he was also often in the presence of nobility, being the king's son and all. He distinguished himself on the field of battle against the Danes, led by Knut Swainson, but it just wasn't meant to be. This 38-year-old man, who offloaded at a southern port, probably Sandwich, enter, entered his half-brother's court within the week in London. He was most likely pretty darn nervous, being a possible threat to the current king's crown, being an Etheling and all. But his half-brother never showed much enmity toward his own family. In fact, Word of the retribution toward those responsible for the brutal death of this guy's little brother, Alfred, a few years earlier, no doubt reached this man's ears. So this half-brother, this king, didn't seem all that bad. Edward was this man's name. Edward had lived for all intents and purposes in exile in Normandy since the death of his little brother, or excuse me, his big brother, Edmund Ironsides, way back in 1016. He had seen his mother marry the man who uprooted his family, and killed many of his family members. He received word of her son, Harthacanute, being born to this new husband. He had weathered the crap storm of Norman succession in 1035, as he was a guest of the father of the kid, who was currently being hunted like an animal around the duchy. Though no records indicate Edward's and Alfred's lives were ever in true danger during this time, relations like that one can go south real fast. Edward and Alfred were shipped off from one noble estate to another like a pretty new puppy for everyone to share, being Anglo-Saxon and all. But for Edward, stepping foot back home in London after three years of telling mom to go and, I don't know, find another husband or something, and after three years of mourning the loss of the only other family member he had for the previous 20 years, I mean, I can't quite wrap my own head around what Edward must have been feeling, you know? Edward had already led an incredibly strange life. Ethlings like him, they just didn't survive to 38 years old if they weren't at the head of some giant army of supporters. And remember, he swore off all this stuff after the last letter beckoned him back. No doubt he had fears that he would suffer the same fate as young Alfred. But he was welcomed by his half-brother Harthacanute, the large, physically imposing, deep-voiced, and extremely handsome son of Canute the Great. One beefy brotherly hug later, and Edward was probably swearing fealty to this king, a brother a full 16 years his junior. Edward had lived as an exile prince with no money or land to his name, being passed around Normandy. Harthacanute had just taken control of England after ruling Denmark as king for a full five years already, as well as negotiating war and peace with the Norwegian king. The inferiority complex must have been real. And then Edward noticed two people from his past in the crowd. Pushing aside the real questions as to why he was called to his half-brother's royal court in his old home, he caught the eyes of two people he could have probably never have seen again and been completely at peace about. 
one he had fought alongside during the Danish conquest of England, the other, the woman who brought him into this violent, uncertain world. The brother-at-arms was Godwin. The mother-at-arms-length was Emma. At some point, Hartha Canute made an announcement that answered any of those questions Edward was mulling over on his way over there. It's not 100% accurate as to why, but we know the what, according to the Quadri Partitus, a rather large compilation of legal documents collected during the future reign of King Henry I, during the early years of the 12th century, maybe 60 to 90 years after this event here. The Quadripartitus says, quote, At length, Edward, the son of King Ethelred, was recalled, through the intervention of Bishop Ethelwine of Winchester and Earl Godwin. The things of all England gathered together at Horsted, and there it was heard that he, that is Edward, would be received as king only if he guarantees them upon oath that the laws of Canute and his sons should continue in his time with unshaken firmness. Now, to be clear, Edward was not crowned, and nor should it be seen uh, as an, an official coronation of him. Legal records also indicate that within a year or so, Edward was still listed very high on the list of witnesses to charters and whatnot. But that was Edward. But that Edward was was very clearly labeled, quote, the brother of the king, end quote, and not the king. Here's the thing, though. Hartha Canute was dying, and he must have known it. Okay, so that's my very unofficial opinion. But after looking at the records available to me and hearing many different perspectives, it just seems to fit. Let's take a quick step back here. There's, a mass, there's massive speculation about what bringing Edward back to England was really about. Hartha Canute clearly wasn't endearing himself to the people or their nobility and slapped the label of Oathbreaker on his lapel, and this guy's reputation was as clean as mud. And Hartha Canute was starting to hear reports of his loosening grip back in Denmark, too. And Hartha Canute was recorded as looking worse and worse every so often in the records between the years 1040 and 1042. People had to have noticed something was just off about their young king. His complexion became paler, his eyelids drooped a bit more, his shoulders hunched forward, his voice began to sound hollow, his walk slower, his overall physique, well, I suppose for lack of a better word, frail? And Hartha Canute must have noticed something changing with his body and mind too, but there, there was no calling time out in your 20s then as it is today. Now there came word of his former standard bearer a much-respected role in medieval court, though obviously nowhere near the prestige and wealth of an earl. Anyway, Hartha Canute's former standard-bearer, named Tovi the Proud, was joining the noble family of the very powerful Osgood Klappa by marrying his daughter, Githa. And King Hartha Canute was invited. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and if you invite a king to your party, you had Better make it rain. You better have backup kegs to your backup kegs. The wine better be flowing. The plates should never be empty. And damn it, you splurge on that awesome minstrel who's touring the five boroughs. Besides, Hartha Canute was 22 years old and a bachelor. This cat was going stag and probably leaving with a few does under each arm, no question. And just like that, in early June 1042, Hartha Canute boarded the party bus to Lambeth the site of the wedding, and after the couple exchanged vows, you know, 
Toby won't ditch her on the doorstep of a nunnery if she'd just give a kid. Ah, romance in the 11th century. See, after the vows, Lambeth was about to be lit. I imagine Arthur Canute being the type of guy you probably knew in college who just didn't know when to stop, you know? I mean, he seemed to have a smile on his face the whole time, and he was clearly having a great time, his voice probably a few decibels above everyone else's, but hey, he's the king, right? You tell him to quiet down a bit. Hartha Canute was said to be the heart of the party. And as they say about parties, they all come to an end. At one point in the revelry, there was probably a loud crash as someone stumbled into a table, sending everything on top flying to the floor. Some idiot in the back, there's always one, right? Probably screamed party foul, thinking it was just some drunken oops and not, you know, reading the room. Everyone quickly rushed over as they saw who it was. It was the king. Hartha Canute was laying prostrate on the floor. They said he was convulsing, a large and still dominating, yet sickly shell of a man, shaking, racked with violent seizures. And, quote, mute was also a word used in the records. If he hung around this mortal coil, it probably wasn't for long. But it's not as if his bloodline was known for sickness, though. If you think about it, Hartha Canute could have had some condition that made him predisposed to certain ailments, or at the very least, something was, was, you know, dictating the life expectancies of the men in his family. Check this out. Great-grandpa Harold Bluetooth lived somewhere around 65 to 70 years, but Grandpa Swain Forkbeard lived 54 years. And Papa Canute lived maybe 41 years. The trend is there, whatever that can mean, but it doesn't change the fact that Hartha Canute lived only 24 years. And in addition to any predisposition he might have had, he had one hell of a drinking problem. His dying actions and behavior led many to chalk this up to overconsumption or even a stroke. But something just tells me that there might have been something else on a DNA level that that might have been working behind the scenes. It's pure speculation. I'm hardly a doctor. But why would he bring Edward over and name him King in England? That's a quote in the records, King in England, if he had planned to rule both Denmark and England. Well, there are two leading opinions on this matter. The first opinion focuses on the idea that Hartha Knut, after allowing Earl Seward to break the king's safe passage oath and kill the Earl of Bamborough, he might have realized he was pushing into pretty dangerous territory with his new earls and thanes. I mean, the guy was a pure autocrat, but he had to have noticed the moans and groans whenever he asked people to dinner or the abrupt silence at the line of stalls in the bathroom when he entered. There's just no way that he couldn't see that he was pushing this line with the English further and further into territory that was becoming hostile to him. So, bring in Edward. No, really, uh, hear me out here. Edward was a son of the House of Wessex, a man of Alfred's lineage. Edward was son of Queen Emma, who had spent two decades or more masterfully playing this Game of Thrones and seemed to have earned everyone's Christmas letters now taped to her mantelpiece each year. And many in England have had about enough of these G.D. Danes, for real. From Swain blazing his way up and down the countryside in the 1010s, his son Canute straight up purging all but two earls in, in his restructuring in the 1010s and early 1020s, not to mention those wars with Norway where Anglo-Danish blood and coin were spilled, for what? 
for the son of the guy you spent all that time killing just to rise to the throne and threaten your kingdom? Oh, and your new king just, arri- just agreed to a deal with that Norwegian king that whoever died first got the other's kingdom. I mean, what? Keep in mind that a 22-year-old and a 16-year-old made that deal. I don't know. I can see why Harthakanut was feeling like he just unpinned a grenade, threw it in the direction of his new friends, and then waited to see what they'd do. Harthakanut, in short, didn't play his cards right in England. Like, at all. Harthakanut was a failure in nearly every single regard, except, in my opinion, in his decision to allow Edward back into his court, and naming Edward King, at least by title, if not in reality. He most likely realized something was amiss. Something in him had to feel just off enough for him to change course in his plans for England. Did he know that he was ill? Did he feel like this time, like his time was limited for some strange reason? No one will ever know. All we know is that he threw another wrench into the English succession crises that seemed to plague the island kingdom since late 1013. Had he not brought Edward over when he did, Again, Edward had been recorded in England for a year and a half or two by the time Hartha Canute's sudden death. As it stood, the English would have been at the mercy of the agreement Hartha Canute carelessly made with Magnus the Good of Norway. And Magnus loved the idea of having England too. I mean, I mean, Magnus loved England so much that he would regularly send Edward a love letter threatening to take it violently if necessary, for the next five years or so. But there's also the issue of Hartha Knut's sister, Gunhilda. Yeah, as I've said much on the podcast before, never, ever overlook the value of women during the medieval era, despite the severe lack of playtime they get in the records. Granted, their independence and ability to establish a life built around their own will, certainly at the higher levels of nobility, was pretty much not there. But the idea of a loving marriage was simply that. It was an idea. And not one that would be truly fleshed out for another two centuries. Women of the 11th century would have known this as much as the men, and both worked with what they were given. And if you were paired with someone that benefited the family or the kingdom, then you played your part and found your kicks in other ways. This is by no means a blanket statement, nor is it an endorsement for such practices. But As far as I can tell, this was the reality. And Gunhilda Knutsdalter, sister of King Hartha Knut of the kingdoms of Denmark and England, she'd been married to the Holy Roman Emperor Henry III, which had been a blockbuster deal made by Papa Knut years earlier. This was certainly meant to tie Knut's posterity to that of the Holy Roman Empire itself. But it had a flip side too. It also tied tied the line of the Emperor Henry III to all of Canute's land holdings and realms. Gunhilda was two years younger than Hartha Canute, but she never lived long enough to see him even take the throne of England. In fact, in 1037, just as England settled on Harold Harefoot, and Hartha Canute was embroiled in that tussle with Magnus the Good in Norway, Gunhilda died at the young age of 17, having given Emperor Henry III a daughter which he named Beatrice, who must have been quickly cast aside in favor of the new family Henry III would create. Beatrice would become an abbess of two abbeys, which, all things considered, was a pretty legit gig for a medieval woman. 
And Abbess could weld some serious influence, local influence, but influence nonetheless, and throw around some serious coin. But alas, Gunhilda gave no son. But stranger things have happened than an emperor feeling entitled to something he had no business messing with. The empire had a lot of other things to juggle at the time, though. Their attentions weren't to the north, necessarily. They were, they were to the south, to these mysterious Norman knights invading and threatening his popes, not to mention the growing unrest in Hungary and Bohemia, too. Now, in the end, it doesn't look like the emperor gave any serious thought at taking England, but at the time, there was really no telling. All possibilities are on the table without the luxury of contemporary records of what others are thinking. And so, well... Edward it was. There are most definitely worse options, even if this guy pretty much publicly turned his back on the crown and everything to do with the English, and most definitely his mother, Emma. I mean, by 1042, Mom could just go take a long walk off a short pier for all Edward was concerned. Forget that hot mess. But man, we all like a good retribution story, don't we? Especially if it deals with the truckloads of irony that must have had Edward belly laughing when he thought about how life had twisted itself against his mother. The one son who survived and on top was the one son she really never had any faith in. The one son she never really put any effort into putting on the throne. The one son that her commissioned story couldn't give a rip about and takes every opportunity to bash. And here he was, not a nominal region of England. Nope, he was the king. He had achieved the one position he had written off after the death of his little brother. He'd probably settled on a life of obscurity and relative comfort, couch hopping around northern France, visiting its many revered holy places and, and engaging in rousing and spirit-challenging conversations with the spokesman of God himself. Actually, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> kind of sounds nice. <laughs> Throwing a trunk ride down to Rome... Yes, he did, and back by a buddy who was already headed that way, and you've got yourself a pretty nice plan, if you ask me. Who knows, maybe you know someone who really messed up and stole an abbess or something and needed a quick visit to the Holy Land to make amends with God before you, you know, you return to your homeland a new man. Oh, wait, we're jumping ahead just a little bit there. Press pause on that one, okay? That's a story for another time. But right now, on June 8th, 1042, one day after the death of Harthacnut, and I, I'm going to go ahead and tell you 979 years to the day of this podcast first episode, Edward, son of Ethelred Unred, half-brother to a handful of murdered Ethlings and two actual kings of England, abandoned eldest son, a 38-year-old exile returning home after more than two decades was elected by the English nobility and was crowned King of England. The question was, did he even want to be king? I hope you enjoyed this installment and third episode in the new season. Please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast hosting service or app. Also, don't be a stranger. You can reach me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler, as well as through email at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. We have a lot in store for the show this year, including some bonus episodes that will fill in any backstory we're unable to tuck in during each episode. But 
uh, those will be found on Patreon. So I highly encourage you to become a Patreon supporter for as low as just a couple bucks per month. My 2021 goal is for this podcast to be 100% ad-free and listener-supported. Who knows? I'd love to open a merch outlet for Fortune's Wheel as well. I've got a lot of ideas collecting dust on the old mental shelf, and I'd like to throw these out to you. But we do have to grow the show first. So please, if you find the show at all worthwhile, then I ask you to continue to like and share the show. Thank you so much for your support. You can tell a lot about a person when it comes to how they spend their time. Thank you for spending time learning about our collective story. Until next time. Until next time.